We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. Um, There's been a lot of controversy, or I should say some controversy in recent years in our post-cultural atmosphere as to whether anything should be said about the Christian faith at all during this season of the year. You probably remember, or maybe you don't, uh, several years back, Walmart gave their employees instructions not to greet customers with Merry Christmas any longer, but to greet them with Happy Holidays, uh, fearful that they might offend uh, someone of another religion or those who had none at all. And it's interesting that as we come to Christmas year by year that much has changed and yet it seems the Christmas hymns and carols are still a part of Christmas and you go into many stores and you can hear them even today in the um, circumstances that we find ourselves in. And as hard as it may be to believe in this little passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is a Christmas message And there is a Christmas text, and that's what we want to look at this morning. It's interesting that we find this in a book that is essentially uh, a church manual that Paul has written to Timothy, instructing him on how things should go in the church. And he begins by speaking to them about the era that they are to combat, and this is chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the worship of the church and the place of prayer, the place of men, the place of women in worship. And then in chapter 3, which we want to look at just a little bit this morning, he speaks about the offices of the church, the bishops or the elders and the deacons. How much more boring could you get? But here we are. And here in the middle of this uh, passage, he comes up with a statement concerning the truth that the church is to defend. And it almost looks like a creedal statement, as it is maybe even in your Bibles. It's set apart. And many believe that it's actually a hymn of the early church and that there was much more to it than is given here, but uh, it is definitely speaking of the birth of Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh is the first phrase that we read of it. So we've got a message here concerning the birth of our Lord, concerning uh, the incarnation of Christ. Verse 15 says, I write so that you might know how, this is his intent, you might conduct yourselves or behave in the church of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So it tells us right away and identifies us as the local church, the believing body of Christ on earth, and our responsibility and what we are, the pillar and ground of the truth. We as a church are to hold the truth high. We as a church are to be the foundation, and actually that which brought us into being is our foundation. But we are to be the foundation of the church I don't know if you are familiar with foundations, but there's a lot to a foundation. If you see a house that has a foundation crack or two, don't buy it because you may run into real problems. In fact, 
if it is condemned, then you have to go in and dig that whole concrete slab out and replace it. So you don't want to do that. Foundations are very important. I remember years ago we were in Galveston and we were driving along and we saw this big edifice, a big church building. It kind of reminded me of uh, one of the president's homes. Which one was it? That had the big dome? That's Jefferson. That's what it looked like. In front of the church was a, a large sign. I won't tell you the name of the church, just that it was not a traditional Christian church. But in front of that church, it had a sign. It said, move to new location because of faulty foundation. I thought, how true. <laughs> yeah, how true. And uh, so foundations are really important. The kind of foundation you have in the Word of God is really important. And this is what Paul is talking about when he writes to Timothy. There are certain truths of the Word of God that you need to stand up. You need to hold them up to the world. And uh, they begin with the birth of Jesus Christ and all of his life and what he did for us to bring us salvation. Those are the doctrines that we defend. Those are the doctrines that we stand for. <clears throat> and so Paul talks about that to young Timothy. And he uh, encourages him in the fact that the church that he is now part of is the foundation and pillar of the truth. In Israel, in the age of Israel, Israel was the custodian of the truth of God. God gave them the truth through the prophets, and they were to maintain it and keep it and preach it. Today, the church is the custodian of the, of the truth of the gospel. God has given that responsibility and privilege to us and none other. This is a, a fearful thing in many ways, but it is the task of the church to defend, preserve, and keep the truth and hold it up for all the world to see. Um, the church exists to support the truth and to hold it up before a watching world. That's our job. The church has been called into existence to defend the truth. Now look at verse 16. Paul states the truth that the church is to uphold in this verse. <clears throat> and again, this is thought by many to have been a hymn for the early Christian church. It seems to be a summary, a synopsis of those truths that we are to hold all the history of salvation in this verse. And without controversy or beyond all question, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles or the nations, and believed on in the world and received up into glory. That's an important statement. And uh, I wanted to look at every phrase of that statement this morning, but I don't think we'll have time, but we'll try. Here are a few of them. First of all, it is good for us to remember that hymns have always been an instructional aid in the church. Hymns have always been used in the church to inspire great confidence in the Lord and in his word. They have been used to comfort. They have been used to facilitate our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the best ways to teach the word of God is through doctrinal hymns and Christian songs. I'm trying to think. Worship songs that we sing every Sunday. That's one of the best ways. People who 
are very uneducated in many parts of the world learn the doctrinal truths through the, through the Word of God. So we must be careful to maintain and sing those hymns that are doctrinal and those that are in keeping with the Word of God so that we learn what God wants us to do and know. You know, my wife, I think about my wife, she doesn't like to see Christian movies, particularly Hollywood Christian movies, because she knows they're going to confuse her mind with regard to what is true. Somewhere along the line, they're not going to be helpful. The same is true with Christian hymns and songs. This is an important thing for us to remember. Uh, here's a statement by Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger, who wrote to the emperor about the early Christians. Here's what he said. Christians meet early in the morning and sing hymns of praise to Christ as God. That really struck me as I read that this week because I wondered, do I sing when I'm here to Jesus? Who do you sing to on Sunday morning? Who do we sing to on Sunday morning? The early Christians met together to sing to him. That's a wonderful thought to me because I don't often do that. I sing for somebody around me or for something else or just to make harmony or just... That's a laugh. But at any rate, you know, sing to Jesus. That's what the early church did and left us a great example to do just that. So here's the first phrase. Great is the mystery of godliness. And it's interesting that uh, this word mysterion, or mysterion in the Greek means uh, a secret that has been hidden in ages past that is now made known to us in the church. So a mystery, and you'll find 11 of them, Maddie, in the New Testament, 11 mysteries here that are found in the New Testament that are now revealed. They were hidden, but now they are revealed. And so Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. So the next question is, what in the world is godliness? Well, you know, I did a study on this during the week, and I really tried to figure it out, and I had so many different answers. The best I could come out with in the end was simply that the mystery of godliness is how a man becomes godly. And all of that follows. It's through the birth, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this song is all about. We become godly. Our, the word is piety in the English dictionary, or godlike through the work of Jesus Christ, through what he did. So essentially, the mystery of godliness is Jesus. It's he that makes us godly. It's he that has brought to light the way we can walk in the light, the way we can walk with him. So here's the first clause of this hymn. God was manifest in the flesh. This word in, in the Greek means he was made visible. It's an interesting thing. He was made visible in the flesh, in a body. This is not talking about the sinful nature that we received from Adam. It's talking about the fact that his deity, his, whole, his soul, his spirit were all embodied in humanity so he could be seen. So God was manifesting. Now your translation probably has in that verse, um, he or who? Does it? Who was 
Okay, y'all wake up. Tell me somebody. He or who? Well, why is that? Mine says God. Some say God. But just very quickly, it's because of the manuscripts. Because the King James, the authorized version, I like to call it, was translated from a 10th century manuscript, 10 centuries after the fact. But since that time, there have been other manuscripts found that date back to the 2nd and 3rd century. So the idea is that those are better. And so they have he or whom. The authorized has God. doesn't matter. They both mean the same thing, and you can understand who it's talking about in the context of the passage. But just, just so you'll know this, some people say that older isn't necessarily better. That older means rejected. And therefore, it still exists. And uh, the monastery in the Sinai Peninsula, Tishendorf, found a manuscript that was about to be burned for fuel. It was a second century manuscript. But it was a rejected manuscript. So it's just something that I, I see a lot in this passage. So he's made visible in the flesh. The Son of God is made physical in a human body. John wrote this, and this is, I think, uh, very important for us to remember, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John Walbert said this. John, Dr. Walbert was here in our church a number of years ago. He said, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a central fact of Christianity. On it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. Now, here's another aspect of the incarnation. Is what we call in theology the hypostatic union. That's just a 50-cent word. It simply means that divinity and humanity were combined in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And is, he is the unique person of the universe. He alone is God and man in one person. That is a mystery. That's beyond human reason. We cannot understand that. So the hypostatic union simply means a combination of the two natures in Christ. The songwriter put it like, songwriter put it like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your little boy would save our sons and daughter? Mary, did you know when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? That's saying God was in man. The Lord Jesus was God coming in the flesh to us. This, however, the second person of the Trinity must always be remembered. And the fact that it says he was manifest tells us something else about the incarnation. It tells us that he existed before. He was preexistent. He was from eternity. He always existed. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word, the Lagos. So that's the first one. He was manifest in the flesh so that we could be related to God. Here's the second one, the second clause, justified in the Spirit. Now here are another, another problem. Mine has spirit capital. Yours has spirit in a small letter, probably. Why is that? 
because spirit in the small letter was in the older but not gooder manuscripts, in my opinion. The authorized version, as I like to call it, has a large S, which means it is referring to the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who himself confirms and he justifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by him that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ came. And Paul says this over and over again. Um, giving on down to the third clause. Scene of angels. Jesus was seen of angels. Here's an interesting thing. This means that angels observed him. This is the, the, in, the indication of the Greek term. That they studied him. They studied him throughout his human existence on the earth. They were intrigued. They were intensely interested in everything he did. They were present at his birth in a dirty cave full of dung and flies. And I'm sure they couldn't imagine, because they're not God, the awfulness and why God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would permit such a thing. But there it was. Uh, Angels were ministering to him throughout his life on earth. Here's something that I, you know, take this or leave it. Someone said one of the reasons that angels were so intensely interested in the Son of God in his humanity was that they had never seen God before. Because in heaven, the seraphims who guard his throne with six wings, with twain they did cover their eyes, and with twain they did cover their feet. Twain, you know, means two for you younger people. And with twain they did fly. So they could not bear to look upon the glory of God in his presence. And now they have the opportunity to study him, to see him, and to wonder. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but let's throw it out there to you. They were there at his temptation. They were hovering around him all through his life. They were there at his trials. They were there in Gethsemane. They were there when great drops of blood fell from his forehead. They waited for orders. Because remember our Lord said he could ask at once and 10,000 angels would come to his aid. They were waiting there for orders at the cross. They were seen all the way through his life, comforting him, proclaiming the second advent after he was gone. Here's the fourth one, the fourth clause in our little song. Preached among the nations. Someone said the church is the university of angels. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 that the, the angels learn the manifold wisdom of God through the church. I mean, they look down here and they say, Lord, I mean, how could that be? You know, these uh, they're a lower creation than the angels, these people down here. Do you imagine? I wonder sometimes. They must be scratching their head. How can it be? And yet the Bible says that they are learning 
the manifold wisdom of God and the grace of God and the love of God and all of those things that are important to him and to us. So they are seen of angels and they are preached on in the nations. Some of you have Gentiles. Does it look at your Bible? Does it have Gentiles or does it have nations? Well, what is it? Nations. nations. See, if you got nations, well, that's just a proper translation because it's ethnos. And it means nations, not Gentiles, but Gentiles, nations are, are Gentiles. So you're Gentiles. And it's interesting to me, we're Gentiles. And we're here because of what we're reading about this morning. And we're loving the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is talking about is the Great Commission. It's talking about the fact that God came to the world. He paid for your sins and mine so that we could have relationship with God. Here's what this means. It means missions is very important to God. Because even when Paul wrote, the gospel had gone to all nations already. It was pouring out to all the nations and being preached and being heard. I like this because GBC has a heart for missions and always has. And we've seen people go out to all parts of the world over the years and it is a wonderful thing. What was it that one of your speakers said? Dr. Blue, was it? It said, the sun never sets on the missions of Grace Bible Church. In a sense, that's very true, and that's a wonderful thing to have a legacy like that. Here's something I think that we can think about. Angels, I think, at this time must have been relieved that it was all over after the cross and the Lord was out of this place and that he was back in heaven with them. Someone said this. They were relieved when the suffering and shame was done and they knew that the strange hold of evil in men's heart was broken by Jesus' death and resurrection so that now the good news of the gospel could go out to all the world. And so that little song says, preached in the world. And we could talk about preaching for a long time. Preaching and teaching is ordained by God to get the message out. Then the fifth clause, believed on in the world. Not only did the message go out, but it was believed in the world. This is a remarkable thing since we know that man's nature is sinful and corrupt and his heart is deceitful and hardened. And yet the gospel goes out and men believed it. They believed the unbelievable in human terms. But why? Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit began to speak to your heart and mine. I remember years ago when I came to Christ that the evangelist said something that I've never heard anyone say before or since. Your soul has ears. And your soul hears the voice of the Spirit. And when he speaks to you and he calls you, you will know. And so it was believed on in the world. Um, I can never get over seeing the power of God to bring Native Americans uh, 
to faith. The so-called white man's religion. White man's savior. White men who had divested them of everything they had. And yet, they hear the gospel. And their hearts are broken. And they believe. They come to faith. It's interesting to me that uh, when the Cherokees were, excuse my voice, when the Cherokees and the Native Americans were, they were a civilized people. They had their own alphabet. They had their government. They had everything in Georgia and North South Carolina, over there in Jackson, marched them all, took their land, marched them all to Oklahoma. What many people don't know is that During that time, a number of Christian pastors marched with those guys. A thousand of them died on the way because of the winter. But Christian pastors marched with the thousands that went. And guess what? They were singing Christian hymns. The power of the gospel is so great that it can bring about Negro spirituals of a people who have been in bondage yet freed in that bondage by the power of God to write hymns of praise to the God supposedly of their masters. That's the power of God. The gospel is still being believed on in the world today. In fact, I want to show you a picture. Maddie will put it up there. Probably you, you recognize that little girl, maybe. It's a very familiar picture during the Vietnam conflict. Her name was Fan Tai Kim. And uh, she was in a village that was napalm bombed. And uh, that was the day. Here she is today. Uh, she met Christ. Um, she has a wonderful Christian ministry. Interesting, I think, of the season of the year, it was Christmas Eve. Someone gave her a New Testament. She read it and came to Christ. She had been bitter up to that point. And now she's changed, redeemed. The gospel is still being preached in the world. And it's still being believed in the world. And so you can share it with confidence that God is going to bring people to faith who hear it. And the last clause, received up into glory. Another translation problem here. The word into is literally in in the Greek. It means in glory. It it changes the whole meaning of it. Not that he was just received up into glory, but that it was glorious. There was glory all around when Jesus Christ ascended. There was dazzling brightness and brilliance in the presence of the angels. All the attendant circumstances of pomp and majesty. 
Kenneth Weiss, the great Greek teacher, said it was the Shekinah glory that received him up. I think that angels still are here today and still have a great part in our life. F.F. Bruce said this, Viewed in its entirety, the hymn arches from Bethlehem to the heights of the heavenly majesty. So what we've got here is beginning at Bethlehem and going throughout the redemption story of what the Lord Jesus did and how he came to save us. He came to his own people and his own people rejected him, the Jewish people. But to whoever would, to whoever would believe in him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. So this is to you who are here this morning. The gospel is still being preached. It's still being believed. And you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning where you are. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to make any kind of audible affirmation of faith simply in the quietness of your heart. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the scripture says. You can call upon him in the quietness of your heart and be changed forever like this woman was and like you were like I was when we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's remember whose birthday it is this Christmas and what he has done and what he did for us and praise him more this Christmas than we've ever done before. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this little hymn of praise. Help us to sing it to you. And help us to get the message out. To share it with those who have such need for your love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.